0: Today we're jumping into this series on First Thessalonians entitled Ready. And I'm reminded of a story I, I heard from a, a woman in my small group. I'll let her remain nameless, but I got to spend New Year's Eve with her and her husband. And he was telling me the story of uh, when they were running late for an appointment. I hate running late. How many of you hate running late? Anybody else hate, just hate running late for different things? And they're running late for an appointment. And at the time, they're, they're in their car, and a, a torrential downpour, just this huge rain is coming, and they're driving. Uh, they have to go through downtown Batavia. And as they're coming down, he, she's driving, and he's doing something in the car. When uh, they see that the, the water, I mean, it's just flooded. The whole street is flooded. and he said it, And he's describing, the husband's telling me the story. And he said, it's not just flooded. It's flooded from porch to porch. That's how flooded it is. And as soon as See the water. My first reaction is, is oh, let's slow down and assess the situation. That's his thought. But instead, his wife does the complete opposite. Rather than stop and slow down, she guns it. Somehow, thinking she's going to skid across the water, or she's Moses and the you know the Red Sea is going to part and she's just going to make her way through. And that's not what happens. Instead, she instead of going across the water, she gets right in the water. The car is completely flooded. And he just stops and looks at his wife like, did that just happen? Why did you do that? And she's like, I don't know. I mean, and you can just imagine, it totally flooded their car. But, you know, after everything dried out, everything was fine. But it made me think about that. And and she was very embarrassed about it. That's why I'm going to let her remain nameless. But um, it reminded me, and I think we all have had issues and, and things that we've done in our life where we've rushed into something, not assessing everything around it you ever done that in your life? I mean, there is an expression, fools rush in, right? We all just kind of rush into things, hoping that it'll all work out. And the reality is we find ourselves in the midst of it going, what just happened? And we need to assess the situation and rethink and recalibrate. And the the better approach would be, let's prepare ahead of time for what we see. And, And he had a right approach in that moment, which was stop and think about how we can best get through this. And I, I think many of us need to reassess and think about it. As we're at the beginning of this year, we need to think about how we're going to live out this year. Now, we can't help the things that are going to happen to us. We don't have power over that. But we can choose how we live and act in the here and now. And as Christians, we know that we are to be ready, to be prepared for something that we know is coming. And that is the second coming of Jesus Christ. The Bible talks about it time and time again, that we need to be prepared for it. And we need to be ready so that when he comes, we find ourselves not wondering what just happened, but we're ready to go, prepared. I was actually reading that in my quiet time this morning. I was going through Matthew chapter 25. And in it, it talks about this, the bridegroom that is coming for his bride and that these, these attendants of the bride are waiting. But they didn't keep their, their lamps ready and filled. They didn't expect him to come. They weren't ready for it, and they missed out on this beautiful, wonderful thing. And it's, it's a picture of the second coming of Christ. that We need to be ready. And 1 Thessalonians talks about being ready for what God has for us, not only in the second coming of Christ, but living in the here and now. Being ready, being present, living in such a way that God is pleased with our lives. So today we're going to start and look at this beginning of this book, 1 Thessalonians, and then we're going to be talking about 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians for the next 17 weeks. So today my goal is to give you a 33,000 foot overview of this book as we are going to be delving into it in the weeks and months to come. But as we do so, I have some questions for you. First of all is, what, um, how am I living my life if Jesus were to come tomorrow? What would I change? How would I live my life differently? I want us to think about that. How is my conduct in the here and now? How do I live for Christ now? Am I living a life that's worthy of the calling that God has upon my life? As we enter into 2016 and everybody has great goals, people want to get in shape, they want to be healthy, they want to be this, but I, I pray and my hope and prayer is that we live, we, we can be holy. We can be holy and set apart. And, and we need to redefine the term holy. Sometimes I think we equate holy or make holy a synonym for boring. That's not what holiness means. I think when we hear that term and we think it's so far removed from who we are. And the idea of holy, it just it corners us in and, and creates strange feelings within us. But God means to be, it, it, for God, it means to be set apart, and it means to be increasing in our likeness of him. And, and, and in God's mind, it means becoming more and more like him so we might increase in our joy and experience of him. So I invite us to turn uh, with me as we get ready to jump into this passage. Before we go any further, I just want to ask God to bless our message time today. Father, we know that you are the great God that has called us unto yourself, that you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins, that he was buried and rose again for our uh, justification. Lord, we know that he ascended into heaven and that he is awaiting the kingdom to come in its fullness, that he can come with his holy angels and make all wrongs right. So Lord, please prepare us in, in the here and now to be ready for his return when he comes. Lord, help us increase in our joy and knowledge of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, to really grasp 1 and 2 Thessalonians requires us to know a few different things. First of all, it requires us to know the people of the letters to whom this was written. We need to know the people that Paul was writing to. That's the first point that I want us to write down. In order to really get a grasp of any type of historical situation, we need to know all the players that are involved. So here we need to know the people that Paul is writing to now I'm going to give you summations of this after reading through first and second Thessalonians and the first thing that we can see about this group of people is that they were recent disciples. I mean they were living in the city of Thessalonica, which is now the modern city of Thessaloniki It's a harbor city on the uh, Aegean Sea it's a commercial and civic center in the ancient world was the capital of Macedonia. It was named after Alexander the great's half-sister. He had a military general who was married to his half-sister who decided to name it after his wife, uh, and it was Thessalonica. And it was a, it was a, a very, um, it was a large city, it was a port city, it was a commercial city, a, a place of great civic, uh, a lot of different things going on. They were actually ruled by politarchs, that there were five or six people that were given the responsibility of enacting their own laws and these these individuals ran this city so it was a, it was a, a pretty amazing a cosmopolitan city and the people that he's writing to are recent disciples. These aren't very mature believers in Christ. Matter of fact, this letter is believed to be Paul's second letter that he ever wrote, next to Galatians. Some see it as the third of all the New Testament letters, next to James, Galatians, and uh, 1 Thessalonians. It's written in about A.D. 51. We know, according to the Apostle Paul, and look at the book of Acts, that it was, uh, Paul had visited Thessalonica in the year A.D. 49. In, in, uh, according to the book of Acts, he, as was his custom, would go into the Jewish synagogues and he would reason from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ, that he died, was buried, he rose again. And so he was doing that for three weeks. Now, some scholars believe he was there for just three weeks. Others believe that he was there for about three months. And it says that many people were converted during that period of time. Many of the, um, many, uh, I mean, a few of the leaders of the city, some very prominent women were converted. Uh, Many came from Gentile, from Jewish backgrounds. They came to be, uh, came to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, that caused some unrest within the city, and people became very jealous of Paul's influence, so they organized a riot and a mob, and they were looking for Paul. They couldn't find him, so they found one of the earliest leaders of this group, a man by the name of Jason and some of the leaders of this new group of believers. They brought him outside, put him on trial, declared them guilty, and they made him pay a fine, and they were going on their way. But they were quite belligerent and hostile to the gospel message. And these individuals that came to faith in Christ had only been in Christ, I mean, they'd only had teaching for between three weeks and a few months. So these are recent disciples that Paul is writing to. And it's pretty phenomenal when you think about that, how they are recent disciples. Uh, I mean, these are not people that had been schooled tremendously. They didn't have... had have the opportunity that many of us in this room have, you have heard more sermons now, quite possibly, than they they ever heard in their lifetime. You have more access to more resources than any of them ever did. Often that we think that these people within the scripture were so schooled, and some were, especially Paul, he was in the best schooling of his day, and we think these people are so beyond us, the reality is, is they had so much less education than we do. And in our country today, we equate discipleship with information giving. I was talking with uh, someone about this while I was in India, and they said, you know, the difference between the West and the East is this. In the West, they equate discipleship with giving more information. He said, in the East, they look at it as greater obedience to the Lord. I said, well, what do you you mean by that? I mean, we would say obedience. He said, it's like a mother duckling. A mother duckling, I I mean, a mother duck, and she has her ducklings in tow. He said, they look at discipleship as being a duckling is that you're following someone and you have someone following you. And you're seeking to be ever obedient. It's not about getting greater information. We have information like we've never had before in our lives. I was speaking to a man one time about a passage. Uh, he was a, a pastor friend of mine. And he said, I said, I'm not exactly sure what to do with this passage and how to, how to preach it. He goes, just give them more information as if that's what was needed in order to make that a good sermon. No, it's not about information. It's about teaching people application So it might lead to life transformation. So we don't need more information. We have information more than we could ever access or process in our lifetimes. So what we need is application, and that means to be obedient. And these guys were obedient to the Lord. They were recent disciples, but they sought to obey God with their the entirety of their lives. And I've been reading recently about the Iranian church, which is the fastest growing church in the world. Many are turning to Christ in secret churches, and the first thing they need to know after turning to Christ is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. They learn what it means to pray, to confess sins, to worship, and to witness to others about who Jesus is. Now let me ask you the question. Are you doing those things? Are you keeping a short account of sin? Do you know how to confess your sin to someone else? I mean, not just to God. The scripture is very clear that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness in 1 John 1 9. But James chapter 5, verse 16 also says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Have, are you keeping a short account of sins? Are you worshiping the Lord privately? Are you reading the word of God? Are you praying? Are you disciplining yourself for the sake of godliness? See, we have a lot today are a lot of Christians, but not a lot of disciples. I was reading, uh, Leonard Sweet yesterday wrote this on Facebook. He's a, uh, we're Facebook friends. He's a scholar. And he said, The word disciple occurs 269 times in the New Testament. Christian, three times. Leader, one time. Kubernetes usually translates captain of the ship in First 1 Corinthians 12.28, which we translate as leader or administer. He says, the biggest problem of the church today is filled with Christians and leaders, not disciples. Are you a disciple? Are you a disciple? Are you a fo- And it means a follower. And here it's that picture of the duckling again. A follower is someone who is following Jesus. And it means following with our lives. It's not about self-identification. It's not making and choosing what you want Christianity to be. It's following Jesus with your life. And see, that's what the Thessalonians were doing. They had heard the truth about who Jesus is and they sought to follow him and organize their life in such a way that he was seen and known and is the Lord of their life. Now, this church had many new believers, and remember, they weren't meeting in a building at this time, but most often the early church met in people's homes. They were also racially diverse. They were racially diverse. This was a church that was not uh, just one group of people. Being a cosmopolitan harbor town, you're going to have a lot of different, different groups that are coming in. And this church was no different. The city was large enough. I mean, it was a Gentile city in what is now modern-day Greece. At the time, it was Macedonia. And it was very diverse. It was large enough that it had a Jewish synagogue that it could support a synagogue. So, it had Jews there, it had Gentiles there, it had different races. It, it, we learned from the, the book of 1 Thessalonians that people were turning from pagan back, backgrounds and had forsaken idol worship. So, there were many idol worshipers. So, people were coming from Jewish backgrounds, they were coming from Gentile backgrounds. And in that context, it, mean coming, it means coming from like the Greek mythology. Uh, many people were worshippers of Zeus or Aphrodite. I mean, you had the entire Roman and Greek pantheon of gods and goddesses of which many people would worship. But here they are forsaking that, and they are embracing Jesus alone as their Lord and Savior. So it's their recent disciples, but they are racially diverse, but they also are radically devoted. They are radically devoted to the Lord. See, it didn't take too long for Paul, Silas, and Timothy, who were Paul's uh, ministry team, to be kicked out of Thessalonica. As I mentioned before, some say that he was only there for three weeks. Others say it was several months. But eventually, word got out, became hostile, the mob broke out, and then they deemed it beneficial that they needed to leave the city for the sake of the people that were there. So they leave this infant church, and Paul is not sure how they're faring. He's nervous about them. So he leaves, he ends up, they end up going to Berea with their short time, but Jews from Thessalonica make their way to Berea. They drum up the crowds as well. He has to flee on, he goes to Corinth. His team had broken up at this period of time. Uh, I think Timothy had gone on, Luke had gone on. They'd gone to different places, Philippi, and uh, checking out different ministry centers. And they finally come back and they meet Paul in Corinth. And Timothy is giving a report to Paul about everything he'd seen. And Paul is overjoyed at them to see that they, are, they have taken the little that they had and they've applied it to their lives. And they are living by this truth. And it wasn't years. This is months. And they are applying and living by everything that they had been taught. See, it reminds me of this pastor who got up one Sunday morning and he preached a sermon. And he got done, and, and a week went by, and he came back the next week, and he preached the same exact sermon. Well, the church was a little disturbed. Like, maybe he just didn't have enough material, or uh, we don't know exactly what happened. Well, he came back the third week, and he preached the exact same sermon again. Well, now people are getting a little bit in uproar. Why does he keep preaching the same sermon? We didn't, pre- we didn't hire you to preach the same message all the time. And they're like, well, we're going to give him one more chance. He comes back the next week and preaches the exact same sermon again. Now they're irate. They come up to him. They said, Pastor, why are you preaching the exact same sermon over and over again? He says, well, when you get this one, I'll move on to the next one. See, if you can't apply this, why would we move on to the next thing? So we have to apply. It's not just about attending. It's about applying the word of God that it becomes part of us. See, and they are radically devoted to the Lord. They didn't need Paul that was there. I mean, they, had, they, were, they were having a difficult time, but they were holding on to the Lord. Now, Timothy had, had filled Paul in on many of the problems that this church was facing. He, I mean, every church has problems. Every single one without exception. If you are going to go to a church and it says that it's, not pro- or it's the perfect church, as the expression says, if you join that church, it won't be perfect anymore. Okay? It's filled with sinful people. It's just the way that it is. We're a spiritual hospital. It's a spiritual triage center. You're going to encounter sick people. We're all trying to get to the great physician. So this church, though, faced many different problems. And he, he tells them and fills them in about some of the problems that they were facing. First of all, they were facing fierce opposition. I mean, they were dealing with mobs. They were dealing with mobs, people that were trying to take them out. And I I think about this today, and I don't know why we as Christians think that we're going to escape opposition. We have this tendency to think that God's blessing means no opposition. It could be the complete opposite. If you are doing what God wants you to do, you will experience opposition. The scripture is very clear. Endure suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. If we are standing for Jesus, some people will love that, other people will hate it. It's inevitable. We see that going on within the world today. We see now that the persecution of Christians is going on on an epic scale that has not ever been seen before. Matter of fact, many different scholars, academics, as well as just uh, reporters, people that are seeing it on the world, they're asking for our president of the United States to declare that Christians are going through a genocide. That they are being executed, that they are being persecuted on a scale that has never been seen before. And he has been hesitant to do so. Although, and I have to give props for props as due, one of our presidential candidates, Hillary Clinton, has said it is a genocide that is going on. Matter of fact, one man who had been captured, he was uh, working for the Iraqi army. He had been fighting against ISIS. He was captured, put in prison for three days before he was able to escape. And they asked him after he got out, what was it like? And he talked about the torture that he went through. But then he stopped and he highlighted one thing. He said the Christians got it worse than anybody else. He said they would be put in caskets and lit on fire from the inside. This is going on in our world today. Today. That people are, who are followers of Jesus are being persecuted for their faith. And not just far away. We have that in Aurora, too. You may not hear the stories. I have. There are people that are in Aurora that have experienced persecution for their faith in Christ here. There's no safe place any longer. There is no such thing as a safe faith. That if you follow Jesus, that you are going to experience fierce opposition just, in some ways, just like the Thessalonians did. Now, these guys didn't just face fierce opposition on the outside, but they faced false teachers trying to get in on the inside. Now, we might not think of false teaching as a big deal, but it is a big deal. It's such a big deal that much of the New Testament and many of the authors of the New Testament address it time and time and time again. And it's equated to poison. It will destroy your walk with God and destroy your conception of God. And these guys had false teachers coming in. Some had said the second coming of Christ had already happened. Some said that it was never going to come. They just, some said that, yeah, it's going to happen at any minute. You need to quit your job and just do nothing and just wait for Jesus to come, build up rations, and get ready to go. That's not what he's saying. I mean, and, they had, and Paul had to come in and, hear, and he had to correct their false, these false teachers. And we have false teachers today that are coming on, and let me tell you, sometimes they're in suits and ties, sometimes they're evangelists on the church channel, and they sell books at Walmart. And we have to be aware of that. Just because it says Christian, just because the person says Jesus, just because the person might be on TV, and they're sold at the Family Life Christian Bookstore, does not mean that they're not heretics. Because A lot of the people that run many of these groups and publishing houses and TV stations are looking for who sells. It's a business, unfortunately. People are looking to who buys what. And we have to go back to what does the Word of God say? To be like the Bereans that Paul encountered that went to the Scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. And just because someone stands up and says, this is my Bible, it has what it says I have. It does what it says it does. That doesn't mean that they're, not, that they're true followers of Jesus. We have to measure it according to what it says. We have to guard against false teachers. Now, they faced false teachers, but to make matters worse, they had fledgling leaders. These were newbies. These weren't guys that had three years of seminary training and had the greatest internships in a church of 15,000 people. These are guys that are learning in foxholes that they're trying to learn as they're going. Paul puts leaders in place, and they might have had been schooled in some aspect of Judaism, but they are learning as they're going and trying to shepherd this group of people. So they have fledgling leaders. They have false teachers that are coming in. They're dealing with all kinds of trouble. I mean, we think these guys are so far removed, but the reality is, is they're just like us. And to make matters worse, this church, like any young church, had to deal with fleshly conduct fleshly conduct. And I was reading this book again about the, what's going on in the Iranian church, and one of the men who had, been, uh, had done several church plants, after someone comes to faith in Christ, he says, the first things I have to teach them are about sexual morality, uh, gossip, and confessing sin. Those are the first three things I have to do. And it's not a lot different in our world today. We have access to sins like no other generation before us, and now we can do it secretly. And, we, and here he's saying, no, 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 you cannot do that. You have to learn to control, to abstain from sexual immorality, which means pornography, which means any type of illicit sexual behavior outside of the marriage bond. It means if you're single that you're not to be engaging in fornication. If you're married, you're to keep yourself or your spouse and to keep the marital bed pure. And we also, and it's not just within the sexual sphere. We have to see this in other places too, how we work, how we do our jobs. And Paul talks a great deal about all this. I mean, they were living fleshly lives, and he's trying to correct that and set them on the straight and narrow. And this is how you are to live now and to conduct yourselves now that you are true followers of Jesus. So the question I have are we as believers mastering our flesh, or are we letting our flesh master us? Are we fighting sin? Are you fighting sin? Are you just giving in to it? It's easy. Everybody else is doing it. No one makes a big deal of it anymore. It's not that big a deal. It's a big deal in the sight of God. Just because man might try to seek to normalize it and triumph it does not mean that God is for it. If you want to know how God feels about sin, just look at the cross. That's all you need to do. Look at the cross and you'll see how God feels about sin that the Son of God died to put away sin, not so that you can continue in it and make it that not, that not a big a deal. He died to put away sin. This fleshly conduct the church was known for and they're having to learn how to fight against. And not just that, but they were dealing with some flabby doctrine. Flabby doctrine. They need to shore up their doctrine. You know what I mean? Parts of the body are flabby. You don't think of Flabby being destructive, but when I was a, uh, a younger man, I got to sail. Uh, I wasn't very good at sailing, but I enjoyed it. And I remember one of the lessons that I learned when I was sailing, and we were sailing these 12 foot catamarans, and uh, I remember that the, the, the helmsman, the guy running the, the rudder, he would have to say, Prepare to job, And you'd have to look around. What it would, meant is he'd trip this rope, and it would loosen the sail, and you'd be turning direction, and everybody would have to flip to the other side of the boat, and you're turning the boat at the same time, and the wind would catch the sail. And you had to make sure that the sail was strapped down because if not, the boom would come across and fly and hit you in the face. And I remember the first time I did it, I wasn't prepared because the, the wind caught the sail and it's attached to the boom, which is this big bar, bar, and it would boom and it'd hit you and knock you right out of the boat. I mean, knock your teeth out. It could kill you if the wind was blowing hard enough. So you had to make sure that the rope was taut. You had to tie it really quick so that when it caught, it didn't move that far. See, when you have flabby doctrine. It's flapping in the wind, and, it's going to, and something's going to catch it. Some movement, something's going to come, and it's going to blow you, and it's going to hit you. If you don't shore up your doctrine, doctrine is not just for the professionals or the theologians or those who have gone to seminary or Bible college. It's for everybody because what doctrine is simply teaching us what we believe about God. And what we believe about God is the most important thing about us because what we believe about God teaches us how we are to live our daily lives. It teaches us how we work, how we love our spouses, how we raise our children, how we forgive people, how we deal with evil. These are all doctrinal things. We need to recapture the word doctrine to show that it's about the romance of the faith, not dry, crusty crusty facts but we need to shore up flabby doctrine. And see, that's what the Thessalonians were dealing with. They were completely clueless about what it meant, the second coming of Jesus. And they're all over the place. And when you're not anchored, then you can blow in the wind. And he's trying to anchor them to shore up that flabby doctrine. Now, we've discussed the people of the letters and the problems they were facing. But there's also a greater purpose of the letters, greater purpose of the letters. Now, here's a few things that I want you to write down. First of all, these letters explain motives for doing ministry explain motives for doing ministry, why they were doing it. Some people accuse Paul of being in it for the money. And he's trying to say, no, 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 that's not why I'm doing this. I'm doing this because God has called me to do this. As a matter of fact, I'm not even taking money from any of you. I have consecrated myself and my life to live for you and your glory, Lord, and to serve you. So he explains the motives for doing ministry. Why are you following Jesus? Why do you seek to serve him? Is it so other people will applaud you? Is it so you can feel good about yourself at the end of the day? Or are you serving because you really realize what Jesus has done for you and you seek to give back to him, not as a means of repayment, but as a means of just showing God the depth of your love and being obedient to him? Why? What's your motive? Is it a selfish motive or are you just afraid what other people might think of you? Or is it truly following God for the integrity and true motive of your heart? So Paul is explaining the motives for his ministry. Secondly, he's seeking to establish a central authority. Now, it's interesting, he's writing these words to them. And remember, the New Testament wasn't anywhere near complete yet. I mean, it was still being written. Paul, this is only the second letter that he writes. But he's establishing it as an authority. Even, even they recognize that it was heaven sent and that it came from the Holy Spirit of God. And he's establishing the Word of God as the authority and the dictate of our life. That without the Word of God, we have nothing. So he's establishing the Bible to have a central dynamic influence of our lives. Does the Bible influence how you live? Are you reading the Word of God? I know that I've heard many people say for this year that they want to read the Word of God more. What's your plan? Don't just say that you want to read it. Tell me what your plan is. Here's what I would recommend you do. If you're, a, you're new to the Word of God, start off with 1 John. Read 1 John. Read one chapter a day. That's what I want you to do. One chapter a day. So read it for one week, and then come back and read it again a second week. And then the third week, I want you to read it in a different translation. I want you to read it twice then. And then I want you to come back, and I want you to go back to your other translation before. And this is still in 1 John. So you have four weeks that I want you to read, 1 John 1 through 5 and we'll come back and we'll talk, because it's going to teach you a lot. That's a good way to start. It's five chapters. It's a short book, one chapter a day. You can do that. I believe you can do that. Let's get it started. Let's get it moving. Let's get you into the Word of God, because you're going to learn a lot about who God is through that. And once you do that, we'll talk further. But start with something simple. Don't try to bite it off. I'm going to read the whole Bible this year. Now, that might be a good goal, and that should be a goal for for many of us in this room that need to step on to maturity. But if you're just getting on the ladder, then you need to start small and build up and go from there. But establish a central authority. The Word of God as being the, the one that shows them how to live in such a way that is pleasing to God. Now, Paul also wrote to encourage them and us to serve the Lord faithfully. How many of us need encouragement in this room? Every single hand should be up. We all need encouragement, do we not? Is it, is it great to have someone come up to you and not just say nice things, but to really say, I really appreciate what you did here. Does that make you feel good? That puts some wind in your sail, doesn't it? Everybody needs encouragement. And we need those people that are encouragers around us. Some of you have that gift of encouragement. You need to use that more. The body is desperate for people to encourage them because people are tired. They're weary. We all need encouragement. So Paul is encouraging this this group of believers as they're facing opposition. He says, keep on. You will reap a harvest if you do not give up. Pray without ceasing. Come on. You're doing it. Doing a great job. Keep going. I'm so proud of you. We need to encourage one another to serve the Lord faithfully. Now, these letters also exhort us to stand firm in the face of opposition. They help establish us. See, when persecution comes and the winds of change are blowing around, we need to be able to stand firm, and that's rooted within the Word of God. Because many of us are too busy being tossed to and fro on the waters of change. We need to be able to find an anchor, and that is in who Christ is and in the truths of his word the principles and the truths that are going to endure until the end of time he's exhorting us to stand firm not only that but it's a reminder to expect great things to come see it's interesting as we all enter into this year everyone enters into the new year with hope hope is an aphrodisiac really is any politician gets elected with an elixir of hope because everyone makes promises Everyone makes promises. The problem is is that when, when your expectation and reality don't meet, and then enters into frustration. See, with God, He makes promises that He can keep, and He gives us hope, not only for the year to come, but for what's at the end, that something greater awaits for us. And that's the second coming of Jesus, that Jesus is returning, that He is coming back with his angels to make all wrongs right. That he will judge the living and the dead. That he will separate the goats from the sheep. And that there will be no evil any longer. There will be no more tears. That he will wipe away all of our tears. So we have to understand that. That there, And Paul is saying, you know what? Even if you die, you're going to enter his presence. But you know what? If you don't, he's coming back. I don't know when. God's timing is not the same of ours, but we're to be ready for it. Now, as we get ready to explore this wonderful book in the next several weeks and months, I have some questions for us to consider. Some questions for us to consider. Here's the first question. Are we walking worthy of the divine calling in our lives right now? Are you really ready? Are you walking worthy of the divine calling? God has given you a divine calling, a calling like nothing else. To follow him that's greater than any other earthly calling that you could possibly imagine. He's giving that calling upon your life. Are you living a life that is worthy of it? Secondly, am I following the teaching of counterfeits? What are you listening to? What are you taking in? Are you listening to false teachers? Or are you taking in the truth of God's word? And you need to expose that. Bring it to, your, bring it to your, some of your leaders and say, is this book good or not? Should I be on guard or should I not? Thirdly, am I living in true biblical community? Now see, this letter was written to a church that was committed to God and to one another. It's not a place where you always have friends. In fact, people, people think that. They go to church to always find friends. Now you'll find friends there, but the church isn't naturally made up of people that are friends with one another. You realize that? It's not how it is. Matter of fact, D.A. Carson, I want to share this quote with you. D.A. Carson, who's a scholar at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, called TEDS for short, pretty amazing scholar, one of the most brilliant scholars within evangelicalism today. He said this, Ideally, however, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, Common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or you can even say common music, common anything else of that sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in the light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, They commit themselves to doing what he says, and he commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. See, what unites us is greater than anything that could divide us. And naturally, we are divided by our flesh, by our desires, by anything that you can think of, politics, nationality, whatever it might be, whatever preference you have. But it's in Christ that we are bought, and we all now have a common allegiance that transcends anything else. Which is why, by the way, and this is what I love, that we can have different races that are in here. I love the fact that we are racially diverse. I'm thankful for that because I learned from my brothers and sisters that come from different cultures. But you see many different churches that are divided. But see, we have a common allegiance together because it's what's greater is what unites us than anything that could divide us. So we have to say, though, are we living in this true biblical community? Or are, we just, are we just parroting it verbally? Are we saying it's a great thing, but yet we don't do anything about it? Are we practicing hospitality as well? Hospitality literally means the love of strangers. It's something that we have lost within our culture that our friends that come from the, the different cultures in the East can teach us a lot about. Opening up our homes. The idea of opening up our homes is scary to many of us. We don't know how to do that any longer we need to be hospitable. The scripture tells us to be hospitable. For in doing so, we might entertain angels unawares. That we have to practice true biblical community. This group of people that were, had come from racially diverse backgrounds were radically devoted in one body together for the common cause of Jesus Christ. And they have to be in living in biblical community. Are you living in biblical community? How do you live in biblical community? Well, you need to join with other believers. Attending Sunday service is great. And that's good. Being involved in a Sunday school class, being instructed, being in a small group, serving with other people, getting to know one another. That's truly how we practice biblical community. And there there are other ways as well. But these are some of the ways that we offer here at Village Bible Church. Now, fourthly, does the second coming influence my conduct? Matter of fact, I should ask this. How much does the second coming influence my life in the here and now? Does the fact that he is coming again influence how you live? It should. We have short memories. See, when we see people going into sin and we don't see them suffering the consequences of it right away, instead, we see them all over the internet, we despair and we give in to our sin. The mind of God is not so short the consequences will come and we need to remember that what we do on this earth matters as it's been said in one movie what we do in this life echoes in eternity a very true quote every single moment of our life matters we need to make sure that we're living holy lives being obedient in the small things whether or not someone sees us whether or not we feel good about it whether or not it makes us happy Whether or not we are holy does not depend on someone else's holiness. We need to live our life in such a way that we are prepared when he does come again that we can experience the smile of God, that we are ready for his return. And that means being about the kingdom business that God has assigned to us in the here and now, which means being faithful, pure, obedient, serving others, and constantly telling others about who he is. Jesus is coming soon. That's the main theme of the letter. and The Bible is very clear that we're in the end times. It could be today, it could be tomorrow. We don't know. God has not allowed us to see that. What he asks of us is not to prepare end time charts and guess or try and predict when it will be by looking at blood moons. He is asking us to be faithful and live our life in such a way that Jesus will be pleased when he does return. Let me ask you one final question. How do you think Jesus feels about your life right now? What would he say if he showed up right now? What will he say when he sees you? Don't wait to get ready. Do what you need to do now so that he might say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Our great God, present. Lord we are besieged and held back by the cords of our sin that we have chosen we are addicted to our creaturely comforts and we have become complacent in our walk with you Lord, give us a holy discontent with the things of this world. We might seek your name, your glory, and your presence in every single cell of our being. Lord, today, we come before you asking you to make us ready. Help us to be ready in light of your coming because you are coming again. We don't know the day or the hour, but we know according to your word that we are in the end times. We're seeing persecution on a scale that we have never seen before. We are seeing many martyrs who are giving their life and testifying to your greatness as they breathe their last breath in the hope that other people too might come to the saving knowledge of who you are. Lord, we don't begin to understand the mysteries that are unfolding all around us, But what we do understand, that's which we trust. And that is that you are the good God that has shown us within your word that we are to be prepared, ever ready for what it is that you have for us. So, Lord, as we embark on this new year, may it not just be a year that we are ready for, but may it be a moment by moment as we live in daily dependence of who you are. And, Lord, help us to organize our lives rightly for those who have not been ready, that have been holding on to their sin and living in such a state of sin. Lord, I pray that they might come to the end of themselves, that you might place a holy conviction upon their heart that they can't but help repent and turn from it and embrace you. And they will find a willing and loving Savior. And Lord, I pray for those who are have backslidden and have turned their back on you, who have grown accustomed to sin and let it build up in their lives, that they are playing with it. Lord, I pray that you show them the reality of what sin is, that it's a poison, and that it will destroy our lives. Lord, may we forsake sin. May we seek mastery over it as the power of your Holy Spirit is working in and through us and applying the word of God to our hearts and our minds that we might go forth in joy and celebration of grace that you have bestowed upon us. And Lord, as we enter this year, we come before you asking you to do only what you can do. And that has transformed the hearts and minds of not just individuals, but families and even nations. And, Lord, we know that the power of Christ dwells within this body, and not just this body, but many bodies throughout our community. And, Lord, we want to see your kingdom furthered in the hearts and minds of men and women and children all over the world so that when the fullness of your kingdom comes, Lord, that we might celebrate together and rejoice what it is that you have done. So, Lord, be with us, work through us, and use us for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.